Previously on Storyological. <laughs> Once upon a time, I was falling in love. Now I'm only falling apart. Nothing I can do. Total eclipse of the heart. Okay, don't put that in. <laughs> this is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week, The House of Ants, or as Emma might say, House of Aunts. The House of Aunts, uh, by Zencho in, I believe, the year 2011. Get into your time machine named Google and go forth. Hopefully you already went forth and you have come back. Hello. Nice to see you again. That's the magic of podcasts. You can hit pause yeah. and you can come back a year later. It's a bit like that one story we talked about before, Huang's Billion Brilliant Daughters. Last week, you mean? Yeah, last week. Or as we know it, 15 minutes ago. <laughs> Uh, the House of Aunts. Can I pronounce that in a British accent no. without sounding pretentious? No. No. The House of Ants. Uh, for all our readers in the UK, please keep in mind we do not mean insects. Mm -hmm. The House of Ants is about a girl named Ali. And Ali is like a lot of teenagers. She goes to school. She develops a crush on a boy. Uh, the main differences are... She lives in a house of about 33,000 ants. <laughs> it, it is mentioned somewhere in the story that it's six. Yeah, but yeah, it's it pretty is, difficult it is to six. keep track of. Um, well, you know, once you live with six ants, it is not that different from 33,000, except uh, you have room to live. Um, <laughs> uh, and the other thing is that they are all vampires. Uh, the story takes place in Malaysia in a small town near Kuala Lumpur, though not Kuala Lumpur, because that is where all the cool kids are. Yeah, and she's out in the sticks. She is a out in the life. sticks. The story takes us through the, the burgeoning relationship between Ali and this boy, and the, the feeling that Ali is a monster, and she's falling in love with a human, and all of these choices that she, she wants to make that go against what her aunts want her to do. She wants to have a friendship. She wants to maybe have a relationship. She wants to be able to eat with the boy, which means asking one of the aunts, can you please fry these human livers in a way that looks not like so much... Nuggets like human livers and the ant is like sure i can do that and yeah she makes them look like chicken nuggets which she takes to school and the thing that makes you love this story is that the romance between ali and the boy whose name is constantly mispronounced in the story to great entertaining effect is that what keeps them apart ultimately is not the ants it is both Ali and the boy's image of each other. So at first she feels like he is such a cool boy and I'll never be able to talk to him. But then he just comes up to her and talks to her and she discovers, oh, I know how to speak to people and they speak. And then when he learns that she is a vampire, which is one of the greatest moments in story history, which involves him saying that he has a secret, which turns out to be that he loves her. She has a secret too, which is that she loves him, but she's so afraid to say that secret, she just comes out with, I'm a vampire. And he does not believe her, which makes her angry. So she shows him her face. Her real vampire face. Her real face. vampire face. And he has the reaction most boys might have, which is to run away. Part of growing up and part of falling in love 
is discovering conflicts that are about you and about the world and not entirely about you and your family. And that is a moment where the plot shifts towards how are these two people going to resolve it? There is an unfortunate moment where he tries to stab her in the throat with a nail because that will turn her into a beautiful woman. She does not take kindly to that. <laughs> she she is suitably irritated, I think. At she, that. Yeah, she is suitably irritated. And then there's another moment after that, also a bit unfortunate, where the ants, having discovered this attempt to stab their niece slash granddaughter in the throat with a nail, uh, decide that they will eat the boy, which Ali also thinks is an unfortunate turn of events. I love the way you're smiling because, yes, that is why you love the story is because there's just so many problems. Right. Uh, And yet, no matter how absurd the problems, they feel so rooted in character and in family and in love that you smile and you laugh and you cringe and you enjoy every obstacle that gets thrown in their way and in every leap over the obstacle, and in every crash through a window, flying through the night kind of uh, joy that the story gives you. Because the story, for all of the sense that the ants are a burden on Ali because they, they want her to be a certain kind of vampire and to live a certain kind of life, the love between the ants and Ali is never cheapened or put in doubt. It is, it is tr- true And part of how true the love is, is why it's such a burden. And in the same way, the young love between Ali and the boy, the the, the genuineness of that feeling is what leads to a whole bunch of problems. Exactly. And emotion, like real, true emotion and making that emotion manifest in the aunts and in the boy and her relationship with the boy is is what makes this story so perfect. I mean... There's so many things that are delightful about it, but I really felt how oppressive her house and her family were and how that had been made even more real by the fact that she, her aunts are all vampires too and how she has this giant secret in her home that she can't tell anybody else about. And there's this amazing quote that um i highlighted that describes kind of how her aunts are about things it says once an aunt got hold of an observation she did not let go of it until she had crunched its bones and sucked the marrow out and saved the bones to make soup with later and um that says so many things in that sentence it says how oppressive it is it says kind of how their attitude is about parsimony and about um, thriftiness and it says how it's about control and somewhat passive aggressive kind of control because they, it says at one point in the story that they never tell her off they just you know uh, I can't it's not disappointed they they tell her stories yeah they tell they, her stories they, because because she's they're not telling her off which you could only ever do when she did something wrong but instead telling her stories telling her things they could do that all the time. All the time, yeah. Uh, the thing I wanted to add to the emotional realness of it was how, and it kind of it kind of builds from right. The Ali is some, is a monster, you know. She's a, a vampire or a Pontianak, and she 
wants to live in a way that is different to how her aunts want her to live. And and this is kind of undeniable, right? It bleeds through every action she has, every interaction she has. And then um, conscious or unconscious, and I imagine it was conscious because the writing is so beautiful, Zen actually explains it precisely with this quote where she says, she stared at her exercise book. Ridswell had written, what does any of it mean at the bottom of the page? She had whited it out with liquid eraser, but the words showed through. Like, yes, undeniable. No matter what you do, the words, the soul, the desire, the passion shows through. And and it's the same with her prose in the story. Like, it just pours out of it. The language and the world of this story reminded me so much, perhaps unsurprisingly, considering Zen's love of Regency romance and things, of of Jane Austen. And it it was in particular that the ants were like, there's a right way to live, and this is the way you need to live. So in the same way that like Ali doesn't want to live that way, and is so to a certain extent an outcast in her family, so many of Jane Austen's characters are more or less monsters mm-hmm. in the sense that there's a right way to live, and they're not going to live that way. And while her aunts are vampires... They are obsessed with performing normal. They're obsessed with cooking their food the way that humans cook food. They're obsessed with their, with their Ali going to university and becoming a respectable woman. No matter how monstrous they are, no matter how monstrous their desires, they are interested in performing normal. And in the languages playing with high and low register, the language itself often performs normal for the first half and then punches you in the stomach with the the passion and the want that is undeniable that that shows through the attempt to white it out. The ants forfeited their right to the moral high ground when they tried to eat my boyfriend. She has this kind of light, breezy style, which could deceive you into thinking that it's just a light, breezy story, but it gets you with the emotional kind of one-two. Um... Because towards the end of the story, it's revealed how she became a vampire and that she's not actually a vampire, but that she's a Pontianic. And this is hugely significant when she reveals it, because it turns out that she died in childbirth. Um, And that is part of how a Pontianic comes to be. I went went off and did a little bit of research. Um, As soon as she reveals that to Ridswell, she is revealing that, that... she's 16 odd years old she's had a baby that's how she died and so she's she's giving so much of herself and her story to him and it made me think of the writer it made me think of actually was Pratchett in that he has this light comedic style and then he has a story like uh I shall wear midnight right where Tiffany Aching is this very very young witch who's taken on responsibility in her village and in something like the first, inside the first 10 pages, she is dealing with uh, abuse, domestic abuse and infanticide. And, um, you know, there's a guy who's beaten up his daughter because he's so upset that she's pregnant and it's for, it's like made her have a miscarriage and the village is coming for him. And this 12 year old girl has to figure out how to deal with that. And yet, Pratchett delivers it in this kind of light, breezy kind of style that it just, yeah, the two, the two ways and modes of delivering, uh, delivering that kind of intensity really spoke to me as being uh, similar. 
Yeah, I like that. Zinjo is the, the child of Terry Pratchett and Jane Austen. When we were at EasterCon, there was a panel called Food, Glorious Food that was about the importance of food to life, how easy it is to overlook it, and how in its importance to life, that importance comes from the sense of cultural tradition, because it brings people together, and the sense of the rituals that go into the making of the food. And one of the things that is small but essential to the story that I love so much is the amount of time spent towards describing the ingredients and the ways in which the ants cook in the home and who does the cooking and how they do the cooking and what it means that Ali wants to be able to share food with this boy that she likes. But she can't because her culture is now separate from the larger culture and she has to pretend to eat what he eats, to be able to spend time with him. And I thought, yes, here is a, here is a story that knows the importance of food, that knows the, the, the taste of it. The way that the food and the importance of food and the ritual of food is used is, is not just that it permeates everything, but also it's one of the things that Ali is pushing against. She's saying to her aunts, why are you doing this? You don't taste any of the flavors. There's no point to what you're doing. You're just performing this pointless task and that's what this story does it it pushes against all these social conventions that are constraining Ali and her life and it, very Austin yeah it's, it's what I put was I can really feel Zen pushing uh, all of the invisible barriers in society putting them inside characters and shouting look look how ridiculous this is why is this happening and it's the same in sorcerer to the crown and i can just imagine a tiny little zen and you know when she's a kid railing against the injustices of life feeling and seeing all of these um constraints in society and wanting it to be different and you know maybe not having the ability to push against it and so she finds writing as a safe way to let it out. And thank you. I am so pleased because it's amazing. It is indeed. Next. Uh, Michael Doesn't Hate His Mother is by Marie Vibbert. And it was in Lightspeed in March 2016. It's about Michael and Julie, uh, a brother and a sister who live with their mother. But she's not what we think of as a typical mother uh she is a wild and needy machine with blades and struts and given to outbursts of violence the story follows michael uh, through him getting his first girlfriend a girl named darla and she lives over the road or as chris might say across the street the story blends their kind of burgeoning awkward but tender kind of relationship um, along with Michael trying to hide his mother and his home situation from Darla and trying to negotiate his home life with Julie, his sister. It ends only when Michael comes home to find that his mother has attacked Julie. Yeah, and why, why was he not at home when his mother attacked Julie? Yeah, he was out because he was riding around with Darla trying to avoid his home life. Yeah, his lady friend, who I love... Yeah, when Darla comes to him and is like, well, do you want to go with me? And he's like, um... And he realizes, and this is the sad thing, he realizes, possibly because he has a very complicated relationship with the idea of love, because he loves his mother, which is also a machine with a lot of knives that try to cut his head off. He realizes when Darla asks, do you want to go with me, that for him, 
love will never be as simple as a peeling of a bell. It's like, this is the person for you. He will always have this doubt. And he answers her in a very honest way, which is, I don't know. And then she says, when will you know? It's so real and honest about how kids interact. You know what the story, what story this reminded me of? We've discussed it before, uh, which is the second book of the Golden Compass trilogy called The Subtle Knife includes the, a character named Will, and his mother is uh, suffers from one sort of mental illness or another. I don't remember what it is. When he meets Lyra, um, Will, Will basically explains to us, explains to Lyra that he did not want people to come over to his house because it was a place of shame. He was not only not sure how people would react to his mother, he was unsure how his mother would react to other people. He didn't want his mother to be upset by other people, nor did he want other people to be upset by his mother. And that is, as you said, a huge part of this story. And yes, as we might have talked about, it reminded you of me talking about my home life and not usually having people invited over. Because if you have any kind of oddness in, in your family, a sense of, of mental illness, a sense of of emotional violence it can be very difficult to invite people over to it what she did that was so powerful is capture how when someone is sick like that it it fills the whole space that it generates this kind of oppressive squeezing out of the seams of of any kind of ability to live a normal life and and that is right there from the beginning of the story in the first couple of sentences it says uh michael's mother is about the size of a ride-on lawnmower and she just about fits in the living room like there is no space for anything else in that living room apart from her michael and julie they have to tiptoe around her yeah yeah and i love the the word choice there because i think the mother is described as being coiled which immediately Picks you in the head, yeah, that mother is ready to strike. It reminded me of, of Zen's story, too, because Zen's story begins with the house. Mm-hmm. And both stories do something that was said at the clearing workshop we were at, which is don't start at the beginning. Start with the goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Start with the thing that is unsettling the story, unsettling the character, unsettling to you, the writer. Start there. You can get to the beginning later. It's true. They're both about houses that are incredibly oppressive and the people that create that kind of difficult atmosphere in the house and i mean the writers they they turn out to be very different kinds of stories but they both spring from that same kind of place of the home being this place of constraint that the somebody needs to escape from but that's why i wanted to talk about them together because they they kind of come from this very similar source and one, one of the ways that it was very prominent in this story, much actually like the story we discussed earlier, um, Carmen Maria Machado's story, The Husband Stitch, is the idea of story. So in Michael Doesn't Hate His Mother, Michael constantly refers to what is normal in movies, normal on TV. When he tells people at school, my mother is mean, they say, well, at least your mother pays attention. And he, he wonders, what things are people telling the school counselor about their mother that what I say about my mother seems normal and fine. He, he, he has a real trouble gaining perspective on his life. And whereas, well, actually, no, the same. Just like in Zen's story, 
part of what gives perspective is falling in love, is making a connection outside of your family. And that is an essential part of life. Try to find somebody outside of your family to fall in love with. It's pretty dark if you accidentally fall in love with somebody who's inside your family. A uh, little bit too much like flowers in the attic for my taste. Not only Both is it dark, it's very insular, and you will never gain perspective on your life until you fall in love with something outside of your life. It speaks to that way that children normalize whatever is in their lives, right? They have nothing to compare it to, nothing to say, this is normal, this is abnormal. And so if what is normal in their lives makes them feel bad, they then start to feel responsible for that and start to turn that kind of pain in on themselves and feel like, you know, they should be ashamed. They they should have done better in some way. They will put responsibility for that on themselves and feel like, they are failing like Michael tries to feed his mother he tries to oil her parts he tries to kind of make sure that she is comfortable in her life and yet she is this horrible machine that you know attempts to cut them and he still feels like it's his responsibility to make sure she is well but there isn't really anything that he can do to to sate her need and her hunger. Right. No matter how difficult the mother in the story is, no matter how dangerous, if he feels that it is his responsibility to feed her and to maintain her. And that, that what you said about normalizing your experience, the, the power of stories to be uh, a bit heavy-handed for a moment, but in a delightful way, um, the, the magic of stories, such as this one, it reminds me of Michael Shaban had this essay uh, about the fortresses of solitude, about being trapped in your in your home, trapped in your mind as a as a child, and that what stories could do was they could they could give you a ladder to climb up and peek over the wall of your home and see the other world and gain perspective. Stories are something to fall in love with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the stories are something to fall in love with that are outside of your life. And I was thinking about how, you know, somewhat meta or outside of story is how glorious it would be if someone could read this story, Michael doesn't hate his mother, and imagining that person, that child reading this story and climbing up and peeking over the wall and gaining perspective on their life. I can imagine that if I was significantly younger that I wouldn't see as much in the story as I did reading it now and here I feel like I can only get so much of it and so deeply into it because of the relationships I've had because of the empathy I felt stories are a way to escape from home and to escape from yourself and they really worked for me like they they gave me other people to have conversations with but you will never complete that transformation. You will never complete that leave of home until you find other actual people to share that with. And, you know, just like in the story, it is Darla, just like in the House of Ants, it is to a certain extent the bond that Ali creates with the boy whose name is continually mispronounced. The story this reminds me of is uh, I Kill Giants by Joe Kelly and J.M. Ken Nimura. Um, and it's 
about Barbara who uh, finds all these giants that she wants to fight uh, that live in the ocean near her house. And she has a magical hammer that she carries in her handbag. And she lives in this kind of fantasy world that it's never quite clear whether other people are really inside of or not. Uh, But then when you get to the end of the story, you realize that the monster that has kind of inspired this, the monster that she can't face, but that she wants to be more than anything is her mother, uh, who has so far just been seen as this kind of dark presence and monster that lives upstairs. But you get to the end and it transpires that her mother has cancer and she very much wants Barbara to visit her, wants Barbara to remain part of her care and her life, but Barbara just can't face it at all. It's just heartbreaking the way she can't connect with her mother and the way that she's so terrified of how sick she is. It's another manifestation of of pain and how a child tries to deal with that pain, but really doesn't have the tools or the support to do that effectively, so they live in this other fantasy world and that is the beauty of what science fiction and fantasy does by by making that kind of thing so real like both of those threads can be true at exactly the same time you know she's living in a fantasy world but the giants are true and also the cancer is true at the same time yeah 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 exactly let's go back go back to that to, I don't know, 10 minutes ago, depends how the edit goes, uh, of talking about making making intangible things tangible, making those emotional experiences concrete. I think I Kill Giants is a great point of reference because in that story, it ends with, yes, you discovering that the the real, in terms of like the, you know, the heartbreaking monster in that story is Barbara's mother, the, a human being, not the really giant things that live out in the water. And when we talk about like what Holly Black said in this interview that I don't remember where it came from about fantasy making things concrete, I Kill Giants is a story in which it's very easy at the end of that story to think, oh, all the giants she was fighting were manifestations of her problems with her mother. And the end of the story is about her escaping from that fantasy world to confront the real world. I think that is a limited reading, but that reading is there in the story because it gives you the mother as a real person that is there and much the same way. One of the things, when I got to the end of Michael Doesn't Hate His Mother, I thought, gosh, I thought of that quote again about G.K. Chesterton that I will continue to reference for the rest of my life about how fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell you dragons are real, but because they tell you dragons can be defeated. At the end of the story, I felt a bit like Michael called the police to come slay his dragon. The entrance of the police at the end of the story was such a real response to such an unreal situation that it slightly threw me, not entirely as much as at the end of Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail, where the police come in and, you know, handcuff King Arthur, but a little bit because I thought, that as much as it was kind of like him escaping from the fantasy of what was normal, that there was a little sense for me that he had escaped confronting his mother 
and seeing the machine as something that he loved and needed to get rid of. I want to just go back for a minute and talk about what you said about um, the the limited reading of the of the Eichel giant story. If you think of the giants only as a manifestation of Barbara's um, like mental state, because I think what this story does and what that story does that is so powerful is that the metaphorical, the science fictional, the fantastical, and the literal truth is all kind of happening at exactly the same moment and you can bounce between them as in whatever way works for your mind Um, but there's no kind of necessity to pick to say either this or that like they both exist in the same space I can go with you on that I think I think that I can I can see the intrusion of the police at the end as a way of like I kill giants of not denying the real world exists while at the same time not denying the emotional experience also exists. When you said how, you know, what are the ways in which Michael loves his mother? There are a couple of specific points where he tries to take care of her, right? So he he tries to pour oil into one of her many open mouths or to oil and clean her parts. And although that kind of wouldn't really be recognized as love in any other household i feel like that is what love looks like to michael that is it is taking care it is part of the maintenance of of his mother um and so those are kind of the only moments we really see what it means to him yes and i it is totally real and at the same time i think a more painful experience to call the cops on someone you love, if we have at least the smallest glimpse of that person uh, doing something that you think of as love. So to me, there was that. At the very beginning of the story, the mother tries to cook them food, and that was kind of like love. Um, but pulling, pulling from my own experience, the difficulty of, of hating your parents is remembering the moments when they loved you most. And what House of Ants has in it is a moment where the ants demonstrated that they loved Ali more than anyone else in the world. And that, would, and that is what makes Ali's rebellion against her aunts so difficult and so important, that she recognizes that they love her, but that they do not necessarily know what's best for her. The internal conflict for Michael is, well, it's less about uh, I love this person, but they're doing bad things. It's more like uh, this situation is making me feel bad and responsible and ashamed all at the same time. And I don't know how to kind of unpick those different feelings and work through what I should act on and, and how I really should feel. It's more about this is a really bad situation that I am somehow responsible for and I don't know what to do about it or how to address it. Yeah, yeah, and I and I went back to that because the title of the story does not mention love and that it is perhaps asking more than the story is interested in giving to wonder how does Michael love his mother. It's not that Michael loves his mother, it's just that Michael doesn't hate his mother and that calling the police into the house and addressing the situation is not an act of hate. 
maybe it's an act of love. Thanks for listening, readers. It has been an emotional journey today. As we hope it always is. <laughs> Absolutely. If you have enjoyed it at all, please, readers, look us up on iTunes and leave us some of your love there in the shape of a review. As always, it is unlikely we can discuss every story that has ever been written in the universe. If you have any recommendations for us, you can hit us up on Twitter, where we are at Storyological. That is story. Like the word. And O. Like the hole at the center of your heart. And logical. Like your very first digital watch. Uh, you can follow Emma on Twitter at egkosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter at Kuvols, C-U-V-O-L-S. And you can also find links to all of our random references and our previous episodes. As well as appropriate gifts and to subscribe to our newsletter and this podcast. At our home on the web. At storylogical.com. See you next week. Happy reading. Click, 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 she clicks on her Kindle, clicks on her Kindle, six years old, six years old, still going strong, don't need to live in the consumer society, don't discard, don't discard, keep your electronics till they die, what if they don't die, don't worry, you will. <laughs> and that was Happy Happy Joy Joy by Chris Camarude.